3CR Breakfast acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the land. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners tuning into the program today. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by myself, Jacob and Claudia. We've got a fantastic show on the agenda today. Yeah, it's a busy show this morning, isn't it? We've tried to cram lots of things in. Following on from the discussion last week that we had on climate, we've um, got a few different perspectives that are going to be presented this morning. So first up, we've got uh, Lyrian DeMello from the Macquarie Business School. He's going to be talking about the international energy crisis and the risk that that places on Australia and, uh, and then we're going to hear a perspective on transitioning to renewables from a coal miner uh, who works at Loy Yang Power Station. Uh, so that was a really interesting perspective to hear what workers in that industry think and yeah, how it actually can, can benefit them rather than a lot of what we hear, which is that they'll be losing their jobs. Yeah, we're going to hear about the benefits. Mm, it's definitely... An important conversation to mm. have, I think. So I'm, I'm glad that we're continuing our climate change theme. Um, I think particularly in this election where the, the two major parties don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, it's important to kind of unpack the solutions here and, and see a way forwards. Yeah, um, and I think the interesting um, thing is how uh, different groups are sort of taking these issues on board the coal miners' perspective comes from the um, workers' climate action group, and you know they're trying to take the initiative back from the to the workers mm. to actually push for change rather than this ex- expectation that it's going to be from from government. Yeah, because we're obviously not getting the responses that we uh, need. Mm, so important and I think another group that's been doing some strong advocacy um, on climate change is a group called Scientist Rebellion which I spoke to um, earlier on in the week and uh, just looked at the movement so it's a a branch of Extinction Rebellion which you may have heard of before as a a protest group Um, and Scientist Rebellion is essentially a group of scientists standing up and saying the, the one and a half degree goal set out in the Paris Agreement isn't really feasible anymore and we really do need urgent action. Um, so it was a yeah, very interesting chat. Mm, well, I look forward to that one as well. Mm. And then we're going to be turning from climate to the cost of living and uh, particularly for those uh, on JobSeeker. So we're going to be hearing from Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre They've got an event on tonight uh, launching their policy demands and it's called The Politician's Role in Dismantling the Poverty Machine. So she's going to be telling us all about that and um, I've already had a bit of a chat with her earlier in the week and, um, yeah, it's 
very um, important and, yeah, she's going to unpack lots of um, suggestions for improvement. Mm, so needed. I think cost of living is yeah, a massive issue this election. Um, so I look forward to hearing all about that. And then closing out the show with our, this seems to be our usual uh, go-to uh, arts segment, but we're, we're going to be sitting with um, a, a playwright um, called Artemis Munoz, and they are performing a one-person show called Artemis, Artemis uh, at La Mama Theatre, and it explores the intersections of identity and um, the idea of, I guess, trying to fit into boxes, um, but those boxes that society prescribes you just don't feel right. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to speaking with them. Um, and, yeah, I think... It's, it's a great time to be getting behind the local art scene. So. Absolutely. La Mama does so many great, great shows. So, um, mm. yeah, we're really fortunate to be able to speak to their performers and creatives on the show. Absolutely. Well, the time is 7.06. Um, strap yourselves in. We'll be right back after this community service announcement. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back. 3CR Breakfast with Jacob and Claudia. Thanks, Jacob. And next up, we're going to be hearing from Lurian DeMello, who is a senior lecturer from Macquarie Business School. And he's going to be talking about the international energy crisis. You know, we can all see what on the news, um, the havoc that the Ukraine-Russian war is, is placing on uh, energy supply in Europe. Um, so we're going to hear about where that's at and also about implications for Australia in terms of our fuel security. Um, and that interview is uh, led by Evan Wallace, who, if you're a Monday Breakfast listener, you'll know Evan. He's a regular presenter on Monday, but he's also going to be contributing to Wednesday. So um, we welcome Evan on board and we look forward to hearing uh, this interview. Uh, so the first question Evan asked Lurian was, what is the international energy market doing right now? Yeah, look, um, you know, Europe, Europe's dependence on Russia, you know, for gas and oil, uh, that has kind of gone off its rails because, you know, um, Europe's trying to impose sanctions, but unfortunately it does not have any alternative supply of gas. Uh, crude oil, however, yes, they could source uh, alternative sources, but, you know, given a significant portion of Russian gas goes into Europe, 
and and the lack of alternative resources is putting a lot of pressure to actually enforce the sanctions, and this is you know causing you know a huge uh, crunch I guess on on supply of gas. What are the implications for countries such as Australia? Australia, um, I guess you know. In terms of our exports, you know, our gas exports go predominantly to to Asia. Uh, Australia is, you know, receiving great windfalls from these high energy prices, uh, not just for gas, but also for coal. So coal prices, you know, which I thought, you know, had reached all time highs towards the end of last year, you know, they eased off a little bit in January. But given that there's a lack of gas, you know, going into Europe, uh, demand for coal has increased as well. So that's creating you know, a big windfall for the coal industry. Uh, in terms of uh, fuel, uh, like petrol or diesel, uh, there is a, a huge uh, shortage of diesel going into Europe and also into the US, because we have to keep in mind that the diesel that, that is produced comes from a particular type of crude oil, which is called a heavy crude oil. And this crude oil is uh, manufactured or, or sourced in, in countries like Russia, uh, also in Saudi Arabia. So because there's a lack of this processing of this particular type of crude oil, uh, diesel is also you know, suffering from a shortage. Okay. And thinking about that, so we have all sorts of different fuels such as coal and uh, thinking about diesel and, uh, and they've become incredibly profitable all of a sudden um, or perhaps relative to, to where they were. What does this mean for efforts and attempts that countries might be pursuing to decarbonize their economies? Yeah, diesel is uh, is an industrial fuel, so it's probably the last fuel you know that will probably decarbonize from. I mean, the other one is jet fuel. Uh, petrol, yes, we could reduce our dependency on petrol by you know some countries you know moving faster to to electric vehicles, but you know. I mean, that there's problems in that space as well, because the material that is required to produce electric vehicles, particularly batteries, you know, cost of that is also going up. So there's pressures on, you know, things like semiconductors, shortage of semiconductors uh, and other sort of metals, you know, that are used in producing cars in general, right? Everything's going up. So I think decarbonization plants are a bit on the back burner at the moment. But, you know, I mean, of course, countries could push a bit more to bring in more electric vehicles and governments could do more. Uh, there needs to be more infrastructure in place. Uh, you know, if you're going to have a huge output or, or, or adoption of renewable vehicles, you know, you need to ensure that you also decarbonize the electricity that is generated. Uh, for, for example, in America, 40% uh, of the electricity is, is generated from coal. So, you know, they need to kind of decarbonize that sector, you know, before we put a lot of electric vehicles on the roads. Are you confident that either of the major political parties have the right approach or right outlook to really plan for Australia's energy security? Look, um, you know, the, the current government, you know, in terms of our liquid fuel security, you know, they had commissioned a report, I think, in 2018. Uh, we've had a few sort of uh, interim reports that have come through, but the final report has not been released as yet. Uh, Australia is, you know, I mean, we're, we're constantly talking about the number of days of fuel that's left, you know, as opposed to actually 
doing something about it um, in terms of fuel storage. I mean, you know, everybody knows the government decided to buy crude oil when oil prices tanked, but they decided to store that crude oil in the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, I don't really see how that's going to benefit Australia because, you know, it's not that, you know, we can get that oil to refineries very quickly. Uh, forget about Australia. I mean, we only have two refineries left. Um, so in terms of overall energy security, um, you know, liquid fuels is, is one part of it, um, ensuring that, uh, you know, we have a, a diverse range of energy options uh, in terms of, I guess, decarbonizing, uh, you know, electricity generation, perhaps a little bit more needs to be done there. Um, we are still, you know, going to be dependent on coal for, for some time. Um, but other options like, you know, the hydroelectricity, I mean, the snowy hydro, you know, is, is moving along well. So I guess in terms of our energy security, because we import, you know, 80 to 90% of our fuels, you know, we need to ensure that we have enough supply of, of these fuels, uh, you know, in case there are disruptions. Everyone at the moment is talking about the relationship between uh, inflation and food costs and fuel. Can you talk a bit more about this connection? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the press and, 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 and whatnot, you, you always hear about petrol prices. But one area, you know, that kind of goes unnoticed is diesel. Uh, you know, as I said, diesel is an industrial fuel. You know, it goes not just into trucks and buses and ferries, uh, you know, in uh, fishing trawlers and whatnot, you know, it's also used in agriculture. You know, 85% of the machinery that, you know, that turns our farms, or, you know, is, is dependent on diesel. Diesel is also used in the mining sector. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, diesel wind generation, uh, you know, assets all over Australia. Uh, so diesel is a, is a heavy industrial fuel. And, and of course, an increase in the cost of diesel, you know, is just going to like flow through to increase in transportation costs. And it's also going to, you know, increase the, the price of groceries at the end because, you know, trucking companies are likely to pass on these increased costs to, to consumers. So is there anything more that you think the Australian government could do to reduce those costs? I think we need to kind of uh, speed up on, on, you know, securing diesel supplies. Uh, you know, the government's been promising since 2020 that they're going to increase, you know, diesel fuel capacity, but it's only like this year. You know, everything that gets announced is before the election. You know, uh, the government's like, you know, putting through all these announcements on, on, on what they could do. Um, but, you know, this is something the government's had a couple of years to think about. And, and I think they've not delivered in terms of you know speeding up the process of actually implementing this these projects. Lurion, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Evan. Thank you very much. That was Lurian DeMello there speaking with Evan Wallace about energy uh, and alternatives to what the government currently has in place. We'll be right back after this community service announcement. It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. 
Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR here with Jacob and Claudia. Yes, we are. And um, speaking of climate, we're now going to hear from Aloy Yang coal power worker, Tony Wolfe. And he's going to be talking about how fossil fuel industry workers can benefit from the change to renewable energy production. Tony was a speaker at last week's Workers for Climate Action Community Forum. Um, Listeners who were tuning in last week may remember I spoke with Jason Wong, who was the organiser of that event. And uh, Tony uh, spoke at the event and uh, we just thought it would be really... All the speakers were fantastic, but um, this is a really interesting perspective because we hear so much about how uh, the transition um, to renewables will damage the the worker uh, environment in the coal and fossil uh, fuel industry areas. But um, we're going to hear what Tony says about that, and I I think it's a, a really important one. So here we go. So, first of all, um, thank you for having me. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners um, of the land that we're meeting on. And and it's really important in anything to do with um, sustainability that we do acknowledge that. Um, You can't have a conversation about sustainability without involving the longest single um, civilization on Earth. And and it's really important. They could teach us a a thing or two about sustainability, I'm sure. And uh, we've done a pretty good job of stuffing it up in the last 200 years. And and we've got a lot to learn. Um, My background, um, I started an apprenticeship at 15 years of age um, as an electrician um, in the Latrobe Valley. Uh, I started at Hazelwood Power Station and I've worked in the coal-fired industry for... I'm still there, and I've worked there for 40-plus um, years. Um, it's, I've seen a lot of change over that time, and um, you might think, what am I doing here as a coal worker advocating for renewable energy? energy. It's an it's a interesting place I find myself in, and, and quite conflicting um, at times, but... Um, my generation, um, we've done enough damage over that time. We've all benefited from that over that period of time um, to, to end up with the lifestyle that we have we have now. One of the biggest questions I get asked is how, you know, I'm a hypocrite, how can I still work there and be advocating for renewable energy? And and it comes back to the fact that, that it was really difficult to find out a, a, a way to answer that question because I, I, I was really conflicted with that. But we've all benefited from the way um, we've produced electricity in the past. Um, there's better ways to do it now. We just need to move on with that. And the coal community that I'm part of, they're extremely proud of being able to produce that energy for you um, over that period of time. They're very proud people of that. They. Uh, I used to get so frustrated that they couldn't see the future and then I realised that some of them are genuinely concerned about their jobs. Um, I'm a bit more optimistic than that. I get extremely frustrated with coal workers being used as pawns in the political argument that, oh, what about the poor coal worker? They're going to lose their jobs. You're actually giving us no credibility that we've got skills that are transferable into new technology and new industries and, and things like that. And it's really, really confronting. And, and I get 
I get more and more pissed off every time I hear it because politicians don't talk to us about that. They assume and, and um, uh, you know, that, that they say there's going to be so many people out of work. I look at it the other way. There's going to be a massive, massive um, skill shortage, as Josie alluded to. There's, there's nobody training apprentices. There's nobody um, building that skill bank that's going to be needed for if all of these pro renewable projects that are in the planning get up um we're going to we're going to be a massive skill shortage and they talk about that the jobs aren't going to be as well paid well well it'll it'll the, the market will determine that when they can't get workers they'll be paying extra my son works on the level crossing removals on on the railways around the state he's getting he's a he's a plumber but he's driving a digger um, on the level crossing room, we're getting paid extremely well because they can't get skilled workers. So, so that will take care of itself. Um, we mentioned, Josie once again mentioned privatisation of the of the electricity assets. The transition's happening. People are starting to understand that. The coal communities are starting to understand that. The conversation has changed in the last three to five years. It's changed from total denial to curiosity now. People are asking more questions. They, you know, they, they want to know what's going to replace. Five years ago, they would say, "You can't get rid of coal. We need base loads. You can't do that." Now they're asking, "What's going to replace the, the coal?" It's not. It's not denial anymore. It's it's actually. Um, well, hang on. We can see the writing on the wall. All these all these places are shutting down. Nobody's building new ones. We haven't built a new coal-fired power station in Victoria for 30 years. I've worked at the latest one for, the, for 27 years. And um, there's, there's no, no more on, in the books, on the planning books. It takes minimum 15 years to plan one. It's just not going to happen. And, and people are starting to realise that. There's a lot of confusion out there. There's a lot of um, talk about carbon capture and storage, for example really, really dangerous in a coal community because it gives people the hope and belief that you can continue to use coal the way we're using it. So it's economically unviable. Like, I'll, I'll put it out there. It's just not going to happen. And, 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 and people hang off that because they think that that's a way to continue to use coal. I used to get extremely frustrated by um, the fact of the workforce that I work with are extremely skilled, extremely innovative, that any new technology that comes into the power station, they jump on board with it, they want to learn it straight away. Why aren't they embracing renewables? Why aren't they getting on board with that? And um, it took an Aboriginal mate of mine to explain it to me. He said, um, he said in my culture, he said, when boys come of age, we take them back, we introduce them to country, and that's, that's them becoming a man, that's their manhood. He said, in your culture, he said, if you make it in heavy industry, he said, you're a man. And even more so, if your son gets in there. And so subconsciously, we're attacking their manhood when we try to remove these things from that. Now, that's a really hard thing to say. I could not say that to my fellow workmates. Uh, I feel I'm amongst um, people that would understand that here. But, but so that's why anything that seemed to be protective of the environment or green 
is seen to be feminine, and you're attacking their masculinity by by pushing that that sort of thing, and and it's really confronting. But if you have that in the back of your mind when you're talking to these people, um, you're consciously not offending them. So that's how you can. It's a long process. It's a one-on-one -on -one conversation with with just about all of them. But it's turning and and it's changing. We can't afford another three years of inaction um, at the upcoming election. We just cannot afford another three years of nothing, of nothing. And that's all we've got. We've got a we've got a statement of zero emissions by 2050. That's a statement. It's not a plan. It's a statement. There's no. There's no milestones along the way to get there. There is nothing. Any government funding, if any of you have been involved in government funding, they set milestones for you to get the funding along the way. That's their rules. They're not sticking by them for their plan. They're not, they're not doing that. Um, <clears throat> I should finish on some of the opportunities um, that we have, and we have immense opportunities in the Latrobe Valley for renewable projects. Um, I'm a member of the Star of the South Advisory Group, which has the potential to replace your lawn power station when it closes in 2028. <clears throat> There's, that's one of four offshore wind farms proposed for Victoria. There is the Marinus Link, for example, which is a 1500 megawatt link between Victoria and Tasmania. Now, the beauty of that is it's virtually a 1500 megawatt battery. That's instantly reversible, and with that, that provides stability in the, in the electricity grid. So it allows more renewables to come on board because it's instantly reversible. It acts like a filter in the system. It's not a generator as such, although we can draw power from, from Tasmania. We can feed power to Tasmania, but it's, it's more of a stabilisation in the grid and allows much more renewables to come in. We need to upgrade our transmission um, links. We have wind farms in the west of the state which are curtailed because they haven't got enough capacity in the, in the power lines to uh, allow them to feed in. Um, there is... The, there's so many opportunities. There's so many... The open-cut mines in Latrobe Valley, we have to rehabilitate them. How are we going to rehabilitate them? The only option they're telling us is fill them with water. Right, now, we're, we're, we're talking about potentially for one... There's three open-cut mines in Latrobe Valley. One of those mines they're talking about with natural flows out of the Moore River would take 34 years to fill it with water. Um, so, so there's things like that, but if they fill it with water, because there seems to be no other alternative, unless we've got a spare mountain somewhere that we want to relocate into the hole, um, if they fill it with water, what potential opportunities can that provide for us? And the mall open cut, for example, could support 800 megawatts of floating solar panels. Your, your lawn open cut could support one gigawatt of floating solar panels. The surface area would prevent evaporation. It could be a low-level storage dam for a pumped hydro system. There's, there's opportunities there that nobody's putting out there and where we've lost um, 
we, we've just lost faith. All we hear from the Trove Valley is doom and gloom about the places shutting down. And there's so much potential there. And sorry, I'll finish up, but how, how do I finish? Coal workers, we don't need sympathy. We need certainty on when these closures are going to happen. And that's the... Like, it, it, if we actually knew when everything was going to happen, there's a really simple plan to, to turn it back to, to net zero, and that is cap emissions as they are now and reduce them by 10% each year. 10 years, you've got zero emissions. It's, it's so simple. It gives private business the ability, that, the confidence to invest in renewables because they know they're going to get a return. It gives the existing companies time to plan for that reduction in their or change the way they do things so that their emissions are lowered. It, it's just so simple. It, it must be too simple because nobody's <laughs> nobody's doing it. So, and um, yeah. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. That we don't need sympathy. We need certainty. And that was Tony Wolfe speaking at the Workers for Climate Action public forum last week. And if you missed that event and are interested in hearing more about workers uh, can do to stand up for climate change, there is another meeting tonight at the Catherine Syme Library in Carlton starting at 6.30pm. So you can join the Workers for Climate Action group there. And uh, a reminder that all throughout May, there's going to be a number of school strike for climate rallies. Um, there's one this Friday, May the 6th in Frankston. And on May the 13th, there's going to be multiple rallies at Heidelberg, Cowes, Castlemaine and in front of Josh Frydenberg's Melbourne office. So quite a lot of um, action opportunities there. Thanks, Claudia, for bringing us uh, such an insightful speech. We're going to jump now to a song uh, in tribute of Ella Toombs, who is our presenter. Um, she's off in Brizzy today, uh, but we thought we'd play one of her favourite songs. This one's Jive Baby on a Saturday Night by the Jellies. Thank you. 
that one was Jai Favey on a Saturday night by the Jellies. And you are on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, I'm Jacob and I'm joined here by my wonderful co-host Claudia. Continuing on with our theme on the climate crisis, as urgency for action grows more and more, people are mobilising to call for a transition away from fossil fuels. One such group is Scientist Rebellion, a branch of the global protest movement Extinction Rebellion, made up of scientists from different disciplines. The group formed last year and has since expanded to 24 countries, orchestrating civil disobedience actions earlier in April. I spoke with a member of the Australian branch, Wojtek Michael Bereza, about the group, and there was one stark message that I took away from our conversation that restricting heating to the Paris Agreement's one and a half degrees was virtually impossible. Take a look. My name's Wojtek Michael Bereza. I'm a pharmacist prescriber from the UK. Uh, I've been over in Australia, so I reside in Sydney uh, for the past three years. Um, I'm working in part with Extinction Rebellion, um, Scientists Rebellion, um, and I write a blog called burnzero.com. Um, my speciality is in something called psychopharmacology, which is essentially looking at how certain medicines work on the mind. So we're talking about Scientist Rebellion, which is a very recent group that just formed. And we know that historically, scientists have played the role of researching and disseminating information about climate change to the public. So what inspired yourself and other members to step into an activism role? Um, I think for me, it was to combat as much disinformation as possible. I saw a lot of things on social media and, and different posts, which, and you, you, you read the comments as well of some of the activism which has happened through XR, and it seems a lot of people are misinformed. And I would go on um, online and uh, I would uh, kind of meet those posts and talk to people, but it was very difficult to get through. So XR was great in getting attention, but I think sometimes the message was lost. And Science, Scientist Rebellion, I think, is a really good movement in that I think scientists are a kind of respected authority by some people. And I think when the message comes from, um, you know, someone in a white coat or uh, someone that they look like a doctor or, or a nurse, it has more authority, it has more weight. And uh, I think it sticks with people a bit more. And I, from the rest of the group, I think there was just, um, we wanted to stand up uh, in there's uh, people uh, in ecology, there's people uh, studying climate science. Uh, I, I do pharmacy, which is kind of completely out of the way, but we all are all united by this common idea of let's look at the data. Let's look at how much time we have left and let's draw up a plan which can meet and be proportionate to this existential threat that we all face. And do it in a way where we can uh, highlight key aspects. So, you know, over the past uh, month or so, we've been um, uh, putting out flyers and we've been do doing different actions uh, to highlight the jeopardy that we're in. 
Mm, and tell us some more about some of those actions. I think you mentioned earlier you had done a number of, of different ones in about 26 different countries. So what are kind of the main uh, goals and, and achievements, I guess, so far of the group? Yeah, so the group, yeah, it's in uh, 26 different countries. Uh, there's over a thousand scientists in there now. Um, our main focus point was between the 4th and 9th of April, uh, where we, we tallied 63 nonviolent direct actions. Um, the actions included things like uh, building up occupations, bridge occupations, uh, entrance blocking, sit-in strikes, pacing a lot of scientific papers and posters, uh, did a few marches, theatrical performances, teach-ins, did a few outreach events. And yeah, this happened in 26 odd countries. So yeah, Spain, Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador, Congo, France and Germany and Europe, USA, Norway, Sweden, uh, some in the UK, Austria, Italy, New Zealand, Holland, Thailand, and Brazil. So I think that's 26. <laughs> wow, it's it's a very uh, far-reaching and sounds like you have achieved quite a lot considering you've only been around a few short months. And I think as well, it's probably come at quite a good time given that we had an IPCC report come out earlier this year that painted a very grim picture that the world was heading towards catastrophic warming over two degrees. So I wanted to ask you as a scientist, what do you make of the one and a half degree goal set out in the Paris Agreement? Do you think it's still feasible? Um, I've been talking to a lot of people about this recently and what I've come to is just keeping it short and sweet. And our answer is it's virtually impossible to not overshoot the 1.5 centigrade um, target at the moment. And urgent actions are needed to prevent every fraction of a degree of warming. So yeah, it's not feasible and we need to do a lot more about it. A pretty clear message there. I don't think you can get much clearer than that. And we know that once it tips over kind of the two degrees, um, or something that I've been hearing a lot is that it gets harder and harder to, I guess, control or, or rein in. So what do you think are some of the biggest challenges, but also opportunities related to climate change uh, in Australia in the coming decade? Um, I think for uh, Australia in particular, I mean, we are unfortunately the the worst in the oecd for our climate record so you know we can see over in europe they're doing a better job than we are um i i really think um we need to pull our socks up over here and just um on the international stage uh, especially um the biggest challenge really is, um, I think XR have done a pretty good job and um, the different environmental groups have done a very good job in highlighting that uh, climate change is a thing. And they say something like 75% of Australians understand that climate change is, is, is a thing. But the, the, the problem that I find, and I, I, I've done a bit of kind of outreach for SR and XR in the street in it's, a lack of understanding of the emergency and the urgency behind the issues that we face. And 
from my kind of science background, um, people often come to me and say, look, Wojtek, like, when is this going to occur? And they they often want kind of like a definitive date where, you know, the world's going to end. Um, but it's not that simple, unfortunately. The, the, the best prediction I can come with is from the IPCC, which is uh, something along the lines of 700 million immigrants, uh, economic immigrants will occur in Africa um, by the end of this decade. And I think saying things like that, which is a definitive point, definitely rings a bell. But uh, as I said, it's not that simple. It's more like every year every uh, that we don't do anything, we're rolling a dice. We're rolling a, a, a new dice every day, increasing our risks of something really bad happening. And um, a lot of the IPCC takes into account um, potential technologies which would work with carbon capture, but it doesn't talk a lot about potential tipping points, which is also uh, a big worry of, of scientists. So, sorry, yeah, the question was the biggest challenges. And I, I, I think that's the biggest challenge. It's communicating to the general public that we are in a climate emergency. And I think one of the best ways to do that would be for um, the government to to uh, announce a climate emergency, which it hasn't yet. Mm. And I think Australia is uh, unique in the fact that our our media seems to be very anti-climate action. So it, it doesn't really help when a lot of the information being uh, distributed to the population is, is kind of reaffirming that narrative that, you know, it's not urgent, it's not an emergency. So we've, we've talked a bit about the challenges that Australia faces, but I think there's also opportunities within the recent future, particularly if we get a new government in that, you know, while their climate policies aren't great, uh, at least there's some potential there. What would you say are some of the, the uh, opportunities that Australia has in the coming years to combat um, this issue? I'm sorry if I come across cynical in this, but uh, there's a there's a chap, um, I hopefully some of your listeners have heard of a, a chap called uh, Scott Ludlam. Um, and he talks very much about this idea of state capture. So when, when I came over here, I looked into, I'm very interested in this kind of principle of transparency. And uh, in, in Australia, you have something called AC, so the Australian Electoral Commission. And I just found it very interesting to have a look at certain politicians, where their donations came from. And the AC gives okay data, but the rules are that under a certain value, which I think is about $4,000, uh, the politician doesn't need to disclose uh, where the money's come from. Um, so what happens is um, firms which want to influence politicians often give politicians multiple donations under the threshold. And it ends up, it's ended up that there's a lot of dark money uh, in in Australian uh, politics. And the reason why I brought up uh, Scott, he's got a great book uh, recently called Full Circle. And it talks about if somehow we can instigate better transparency on our politicians um, and show where this money comes from, we can see who's pulling the strings be behind them. Um, I'm, I'm quite apolitical in, in, uh, in how I live my life, but some of the adverts I'm seeing from being from the UK as well, um, coming out of the nationals, 
coming out of the Liberals is just absolutely appalling. And when it comes down to it, I really think it's the lesser of evils is really on the the Labour and Green side. Absolutely. A lot of misinformation and climate denialism going through, which seems to be a common trend in Australian elections. But the science is all pointing us towards the fact that, you know, we must drastically reduce emissions. The UN saying this as well, stop burning fossil fuels. And yet we've got two major parties going into this election with plans to keep burning fuel. So how do we find hope against this backdrop of absolute climate neglect? Well, despair often creeps in, doesn't it? Um, But where I particularly find hope is, um, you know, we're we're all in this together. And, um, you know, you think about life and evolution, we all come from the same thing. We've all got this kind of common cause of we're all living on this earth. Um, And it's only really just a matter of, I think people are just kind of a bit confused Um, and it's not clearly put um, because of so much misinformation going around uh, that these are the problems and not only are these the problems, but this is the timeline and it's all well and true in the seventies or, or eighties where the the PPM was a lot lower and the risk, and the jeopardy seemed a lot further away. Um, but now that we, you know, stand on the cusp of uh, forest fires, uh, floods, um, water shortages, we've got to step up to the mark. And I think the only way that that can be done is by, you know, you can go into the science and there's a great website called uh, LibGen, which is uh, done by a lady called Alexander El Bayakan. Uh, it's part of this kind of Sci-Hub network. And you can go and have a look at the the data and the meta-analysis and the, the thousands and thousands of different papers which point in the direction that we're in an ecological crisis. But what I hope to do in Scientist Rebellion is really to kind of make a heuristic, like a shortcut for people, um, whereby they recognize us as like scientists and we kind of know our, a lot of our own biases and you know none of us are, are sponsored by BP or Shell or Exxon. And we are, we're geeks in that we like looking at these papers and trying to figure out what the like objective truth is and you know there is no objective truth but we we try to get as far away from the bias and the the crap as possible and what we we what we've come out of that is um yeah worrying times Definitely a a good message to carry through there that we're all in this together. And I think it's um, cause for hope, even that there is a group of scientists who are standing up um, and raising their voices about this. So I do hope the awareness spreads and that, yeah, people become more on board with the movement. Wojtek, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me today. I really appreciated hearing your story and all about Scientist Rebellion and best of luck. 
Fantastic, Jacob. And if anyone wants to join us, they just go to scientistsrebellion.com and there's a join us button. And we're, we're a very nice bunch of and welcoming bunch of um, scientists. That was Wojciech Bereza there speaking on Scientist Rebellion, which is a new branch of Extinction Rebellion who are protesting climate inaction. And if you want to learn more, you can head to their website, scientistrebellion.com, and you can also follow them on Twitter. We're on 3CR Brekkie. Uh, the time is about 7.52. We're going to jump to a, uh, a song now. This one's called Little Sunflower by Dorothy Ashby, and then we'll be right back. Thank you. 
Commons Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. That song we just heard was called Little Sunflower by Dorothy Ashby. Thank you, Jacob. Okay, we're now going to be talking about the job seeker payment and the cost of living. The job seeker payment is currently $321 per week or $46 per day. It's half the amount required to live above the poverty line in Australia. It should be no surprise then that 8 in 10 people on JobSeeker have gone hungry, skipping meals because food is just too expensive. It's a painful scenario and begs big questions about our values as a society and the government we elect to implement them. Our next guest is Kristen O'Connell, an activist and disability support pensioner working in social policy at the Anti-Poverty Centre, which is a not-for-profit politically independent group created by and for those with lived experience of poverty. The organisation is launching their election demands tonight at an online event called The Politician's Role in Dismantling the Poverty Machine. We welcome Kristen to tell us about the key demands. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. It's lovely to have you with us. So what is The Poverty Machine? The poverty machine is our welfare system and the things that sit around it. So we're talking about incredibly low payments, but that is actually not all that traps people um, in poverty in this country. Um, Obviously, everyone's feeling cost of living pressures right now, but while you're trying to live on these extremely low incomes, you have to do a lot of hard work to manage to stretch those dollars as far as you can. That hard work means you don't have time to do other things, both unpaid work, or do a meaningful uh, search for paid work. So people, when we had mutual obligations suspended in 2020, said they had more time to do those things and felt better equipped than ever to actually get a paid job and get out of poverty. Mutual obligations are soaking up time and energy and they put people into forced labour programs like Work for the Dole, which cost you money to get to and from. You're doing them while you're not, uh, while you're hungry and it's unpaid labour. So... These are just parts of it. There's cashless welfare. Um, there's dealing with Centrelink. There's all these things that trap people, demoralise people, dehumanise people, and that's what we mean when we say the poverty machine. And then there's the social exclusion that uh, results from uh, all of those demeaning uh, activities. Yes, absolutely. And again, that feeling of social exclusion isn't just an awful feeling that you have. It isolates you further in a way that makes you less capable, less confident, um, put, takes you away and puts you in a worse position, less able to get out of poverty. So a barrier to access. Absolutely. And again, like, you know, all of these things over time 
Uh, things like not having enough money means you uh, don't have uh, the money to get haircuts, to take care of your teeth, to do those sorts of things that actually would, again, keep you in a good position, remove those barriers to being able to, to get into paid work. Mm. So what are the sorts of examples and what are you seeing and hearing from the people you work with at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we, and I'm on the DSC myself, as you mentioned, so um, I'm very lucky in that sense that I have a bit more than people on JobSeeker, but all of us are noticing the same cost of living pressures everyone else is, but the effect is very different. What it means for many people is that the things you normally buy aren't there at all because suddenly people who do earn a bit more are looking for the cheapest goods, not just the kind of middle-of-the-road goods. So um, we're hearing from folks that we work with that when they're going to do their grocery shop, there's no home-brand frozen vegetables. Uh, you know, In some cases, for cheap products like frozen vegetables, there's nothing at all because those products are cheaper than fresh food. So it's basically, even though we don't have enough money to get enough food anyway, it takes away your ability to even manage that and try and find things um, that will actually allow you to get by. Obviously, lots of folks, um, you know, just the option of driving is being taken away as well. There's lots of different effects that we're seeing. Mm, mm. So the event tonight to launch your policy demands, what are the key messages? Yeah, so we'll be running through a whole range of things. As I said, it's a complex poverty machine. We've got lots of uh, ideas about ways to drastically improve it and actually make it the safety net safe for people. But we've got three um, key issues that we'll be talking about. We want payments above the Henderson poverty line. That's so simple. It's a no-brainer. But we also want to talk longer term about how we measure poverty in this country because the Henderson poverty line is... It's been around for a long time. It's 50 years old. It is due for an update. It's not a perfect measure of poverty. When people were at the Henderson Poverty Line in 2020, we still had a third of people regularly skipping meals and 40% of people unable to meet their costs. So we'll be talking about how we think poverty should be measured. We'll be talking about things like work for the doll, why they need to go. But we also have a big proposal that we're very excited about around how to transform what is currently known as rent assistance to become a meaningful housing payment, um, because obviously that is another huge area of pressure for people right now, to allow people to survive until we get that longer-term investment that we just have to see in public housing. So I might just jump in there um, before we go to the rental mm. assistance proposal. Um, can we step back to your point about the Henderson poverty line mm -hmm. for listeners that may not be aware of what the Henderson Poverty Line is. Um, would you mind to explain that and explain the issues that you have with it? Yeah, absolutely. So in the 1960s, um, there was some work done by an academic called Henderson and that led into um, Billy McMahon announcing an inquiry in 1972 into poverty in Australia. It's actually the last time in Australia that any of our governments took any interest in understanding poverty in this country. Um, Gough Whitlam extended that inquiry, expanded its remit, and it led to um, lots of different findings, but ultimately this measure of poverty called the Henderson Poverty Line. That was based on, you know, the basics you needed to survive at the time. And I think everyone probably can list off quite a few items in their head that are different now to what they were in the early 1970s. So the poverty line that we use, is um, it's based on how much it did cost to live. It is adjusted 
for the uh, for inflation over time in, using some fairly co- complex calculations, but it is by no means reflecting the actual things that we need to have a half-decent standard of living today. So that's why we one of the reasons we do want to see a better measure of poverty. Thank you. That uh, clears that up. And uh, so on to the rental assistance um, proposal that you have. Uh, can you unpack that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a lot of technical stuff, but I think I'll just stick to the fundamentals. People um, kind of, I think, understand if they know someone or um, themselves uh, are on rent assistance or, in fact, not getting rent assistance when they need it, they know the problems. So right now, not many people get rent assistance. We're talking about 40% of people on unemployment payments. One of the huge barriers to getting it is the fact that you already have to be paying rent before you can actually get rent assistance. Now, of course, when you're living on half the poverty line, having the money up front to get into a rental property and to start paying rent is a huge barrier. So we would like to see that change, like to see people being able to access a housing payment before they actually have to start paying it out to a landlord. As I said, these are temporary measures because we do need, not temporary, I should say, these are measures that can happen immediately to support people so that we are able to survive while there is bigger work done in housing to address the problems we have in housing. Mm. But we also obviously need to see this payment go up. At the moment, you have to be spending about $150 a week uh, to get a payment that works out to, to, you know, like $45 a week. So it's really not covering much. And that's, of course, if you can find a rental property for $150 a week. Um, And then at the moment... uh, (laughs) Absolutely. Even for a share house in major cities, it's a real struggle... Um, and so on top of that, it also excludes people. <laughs> Impossible, we're getting uh, comments in the studio here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, it, it, people will be paying maybe 250 to $300 a week just to live in a share house. That's your whole job seeker payment. And if you get the rent assistance on top of that, it's really not much extra. It's a pittance. So it needs to be a meaningful amount of money. You need to be able to get it um, before you are already paying rent so that you don't have that barrier to to moving. Mm -hmm. Um, And the final thing is, in terms of the boring stuff, is just that at the moment it's not able to go to people who own their home. And that means we're forcing people into poverty and stripping them of the bit of security that they may have as a punishment for being unemployed, which is, you know, obviously... um, Lots of people are in a situation where they may have been fortunate to get into the housing market quite a while ago, have a small mortgage, but just aren't in a position um, to kind of maintain it if they're on job seeker. And this would be one way we could protect people in that situation. But the, the reason this is so important is because people are trapped in unsafe homes. People have their agency and independence removed, even if they are in a safe home. So we need to create a payment that actually supports people to live um, a life that is fulfilling and to be able to move to where um, jobs are available. I've just had someone harassing me on Twitter over the last 24 hours about people complaining about housing should just move to a regional city. And I think, you know, it's just that kind of we get that all the time. Poor people get told all the time what we should just do to save money, but it's so impractical. And um, it's also and not um, <laughs> the image of the regional city um, is is quite different to what the reality is. I mean, the, that's right. The cost of housing in places like Geelong and has yeah. just skyrocketed, and, uh, and you know, there's no job opportunity. Yeah, there's no lo- <laughs> there's no rentals for local people. Yeah. It's all being taken up by people renting places out for Airbnb and a whole host of other 
issues. Yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, we, we have to come back to this fundamental human right to have a roof over your head and a safe roof. I know someone personally who uh, cannot afford rent um, and they've gone into a place where the, the, the house owner uh, basically doesn't want to make the house, doesn't want to spend the money to make the house safe for yeah. to meet the rental requirements. So yeah. she's letting it at a, you know, very low rent, but it means that the house, um, you know, isn't safe electrically, uh, doesn't meet the other uh, requirements for a rented house. And mm-hmm. it's a really unacceptable situation to have uh, people living in in our rich country um, in inadequate housing. Absolutely, and that's where we need some of those other big structural changes too, just around controls on landlords and these people are leeches. They're just sucking uh, us dry as people on low incomes and leaving us in unsafe homes. And, you know, we've seen over the last weeks, but it's been going on for years, just horror story after horror story about people's living situation mm. and you know, there's nothing really, there's no mechanism in place to meaningfully make sure that landlords are meeting their requirements. Mm. And people like your friend and even people like me, um, I've got much less severe situation, but we're afraid to ask for our homes mm. to be repaired because we're afraid of getting kicked out of them and not being able to find another property that we can actually afford. So, um, you know, we, we supposedly have rights, but we are not in a position to exercise those rights. And I think all the things that you were talking about before, about not being able to afford to get your teeth looked after or your haircut, they all go, they contribute to um, a sense of yourself. And if that sense of self is is low, then that then goes to your ability to voice um, your rights when it comes to speaking to a landlord or a real estate agent. And all too often the the person in the position of power will will pick up on that vulnerability and know that they can get away with more in that situation so you know repairs aren't, aren't done and and so forth so yeah it becomes very um uh complex and it's as you said like it takes away your confidence but also when someone looks like the stereotype of a person in poverty we are treated very differently to when we don't look like that and Mm. that stereotype doesn't hold true anyway lots of people um who don't have much money actually you wouldn't be able to tell if you're some middle class person you think you know what a poor person looks like but you really don't but if you are over time unable to care for your teeth unable to buy new clothes unable to get a haircut, you start to look like someone who doesn't care about yourself. And people in those positions of power consciously and unconsciously judge you for that and Mm. do not get treated like a human being. Well, thank you for sharing your views this morning. Um, Can we just give listeners uh, details of the Mm. event tonight? It's an online event at 7.30. How can listeners register for it? Yeah, so um, if you jump onto any of our social media, you'll see a post there with the link um, to Eventbrite where you can register. Um, It is 7.30 Eastern Standard Time. We'll be going for about an hour, a little bit flexible on that, depending on how the conversation's going. Um, And if people have trouble finding the event link, they can just send us an email. It's team, T-E-A-M, 
at antipovertycentre.org and we can um, send you the rego link or, or just the, um, the, the online uh, meeting link. Thank you very much. That was Great. Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre talking about the policy changes being pitched tonight at 7.30pm at their online event and you can uh, register by heading uh, onto their social media at Anti-Poverty Centre. C-E-N-T is the end of that tag. Fantastic. Thank you for bringing us that interview, Claudia, and, and thanks for Kristen uh, for sharing her insights on what's a very complex um, and multifaceted topic. We're going to jump to a song now. This one is called Pay the Rent by La Batille. Satellites are spinning so high above my head. The future ain't bright. Look out for the rainy days. Who are they to You're on 3CR Breakfast. That one was Pay the Rent by La Batiu. And turning the dial a bit now at our local independent theatre, La Mama. There's a very exciting show coming up for you in the next couple of weeks. It's a show about labels and the differences between the words that confine us and the words that set us free. Written and performed by Artemis Munoz in this one hour 
1MB show featuring nine original songs, Artemis looks over their journey to self-discovery as a non-binary, asexual, biracial, and neurodivergent person through song, story, and several excellent puns. Well, this sounds like a bit of a hoot. We're joined now by Artemis, the, the writer and performer. Artemis, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, the title of your show is Artemis, Artemis, which is quite a personal and very evocative title for a play. What inspired the name? And more broadly, what inspired you to write this play? Well, the name um, comes from my very, very deep desire to turn everything into a pun. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, beyond that, I I felt like I wanted to try and capture the the chaos that was um, working out who I am. And I I felt that that title felt apt. Um, And as as to what inspired me to write it, um, I wrote it in 2019. Um, It's it's a bit weird to be putting it on now so long after initially writing it. But, you know, we had a a small um, needing to adjust for plans Mm. (laughs) in the last couple of years. But I wrote it... um, just when I felt like I was starting to come into myself as an artist, because I'd gone through studying acting and put myself into the world of auditioning for other people's plays. And like, you know, some of that was fine, but I didn't really find myself as an artist until I started um, performing as myself, until I discovered cabaret as an art form, and until I started performing for my community. So I guess the show was me being like, what if I did all of that, but in a in a long form, in a one-hour show, instead of in little 10-minute bits as a part of Variety Nights, <laughs> for mm. the, you know, which, which I, I still love and I will still do. Um, but I, I thought, yeah, let, let's, let's expand on that a bit. <laughs> yeah, wow. Amazing. I mean, as far as um, intersectionality go, just reading the description, you, you kind of tick all the boxes. So I'm sure... <laughs> It would have been a um, nice to finally kind of reclaim some of that space that, you know, um, I know with a lot of theatre shows, they do kind of tend to, to typecast and, and put you into a box. So tell us yeah. some more about, <clears throat> excuse me, what audiences can expect from Artemis Artemis. Well, speaking of uh, putting you in a box, um, I it's a show with uh, lots and lots of cardboard boxes. So <laughs> Um, cardboard boxes with things written on them. I won't say what things are written on them uh, unless you want spoilers, but um, you're going to have to tell me that you want spoilers first. <laughs> um, and, yeah, a lot of me just talking and singing at you. Um, I, I think I'm good at talking, and I think I'm even better at singing, so I hope that that's somehow enjoyable. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, what, what else? Uh, cheesy jokes, lots of those, puns. Um, and I guess... Yeah, the whole show is wrapped in this very extended metaphor um, about, like, like I said, that the differences between, like, the the good words and the bad words, the ones that are freeing and the ones that are restricting. And I hope that with the show that I've been able to go just a little bit deeper than that, like, 101 we seem to always be trapped in when we tell stories about underrepresented communities. So I guess, yeah, that's what I hope that you will get when you come to the show. Um, there's some, some expectations, I guess, there. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like a, a fun uh, mixed bag of, of different talents and quirks. 
I know you're all about um, not putting things in boxes, but I want to challenge you and ask if you had to describe genre-wise what the production is, what kind of genre would you put a, a label on it? I mean, uh, I'm not about not putting things in. Uh, like, I'm, 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 I'm pro-label. I'm very pro-label, but I'm mm-hmm. pro the right label, and I think that that's mm. the big difference. Um, and in terms of the show, it's definitely, uh, in terms of art form, it's definitely cabaret. Um, in terms of genre, I don't know. It's a bit like, um, yeah, it's a bit like comedy meets, um, you know, personal storytelling and. Um, like that that overlap and it's a bit more theater than your traditional cabaret piece um just a bit mm. um yeah i don't know i'm bad at, <laughs> bad at genre but i'm, I'm doing my best <laughs> yeah i pr- appreciate you um trying to define what i'm sure is a very multifaceted and complex piece of work um <laughs> and i'm sure as a um a queer person um, mm-hmm. Many queer artists that I know and, and other marginalised groups are often mining their own personal experiences to create art, which can be both a cathartic but also you know, a very painful yeah. experience. How is the creative process for you, both personally and professionally? I mean, I guess it goes back to that thing that they, they always say is to write what you know, right? And so that's why I often keep coming back to writing about my experiences because it's a world that I I know very well and that I feel like I can actually do justice very easily instead of, like, you know, delving too deep into um, experiences that aren't mine. And I, I believe very strongly in in centering lived experience in, in everything, um, but including storytelling. Um, but I guess... Yeah, like I find that that process is is um is very cathartic and and very important for me to sort of process uh, where I'm at with things. Um, and I guess when I wrote this show, I had just recently been diagnosed um, autistic and ADHD, and um, sort of mining that experience through this work really helped to get me. To help me realize the crux of why that diagnosis was important to me, um, especially looking around the, at the people who didn't accept it at first. Um, um, and I guess, yeah, like exploring that creatively really, really made the difference in, in my journey in, in feeling that I could really fit in this and like claim it out loud because it wasn't really a thing that I'd felt comfortable telling people about um, until. I made this work, so yeah. <laughs> wow, so it's a bit of a, uh, would you call it kind of a coming out uh, for you? I guess so, a little bit, <laughs> yeah. Mm, putting um, putting your like full it, self. It was back in 2019. Um, now things have, yeah, things have changed a bit. I've, I've been a lot more out and open about um, my neurodivergence since then. Um, but yeah, like... Back when I initially wrote it, it was very, very in those early days. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what a fabulous way to, to come to terms with your identities there. I think that's uh, such a fantastic outlet for expression. Um, and you've touched on being, as you said before, neurodivergent. Um, you're also mm-hmm. non-binary, asexual, biracial, um, pro-label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... I'm curious, how can we create a world where um, 
categories aren't so restrictive for people such as yourself and where we can always get kind of those correct labels and create, I guess, understanding in society about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I guess the thing I, go, I come back to a lot is that labels are just language, right? And, and language is a tool and we can, you know, we, we use it to describe things um, and we use it to, like, communicate our experiences. And I think that, you know, encouraging people to, to find the language that helps them to best describe their experiences, but also find community and, um, you know, connect with other people and know that they're not alone. Um, I think that that's just the thing we need to encourage broadly. Um, And I I find it a thing that I I, I realised is, and and I guess the greater metaphor of the show goes into, that um, people often ask me, like, why do you have to label it? but those people are also still applying labels and they just don't think about it because those the labels that they're giving are, say, the default. Like, for instance, before I had the word non-binary, uh, the world was trying really, really hard to convince me that I fit into the girl box. And um, mm. some people just see that girl box as not a label, right? That it's uh, because because it's one of the default settings. But it's still a label. <laughs> it's... Uh, just a very different one. And I guess that's the kind of thing I would hope, both with this show, but in general, that I can um, be a part of helping the wider community understand because, yeah, language is, is important and it's good. <laughs> we we all use it all the time. And not having the word for a table doesn't mean that we aren't still going to eat dinner on a table. <laughs> we just would be like, oh, that thing with four legs and a flat surface. And it <laughs> takes a lot more time to explain what it is than if we all just agree on a word that means the same thing as the definition, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think your your play is just another piece in the puzzle, really, of um, a broader movement of uh, cultural change towards yeah, embracing different labels and more understanding. And we're we're seeing more and more shows that explore these intersectional experiences and Mm -hmm. different identities. Why do you think it's important to keep telling these stories? I mean, I guess in terms of intersectionality, um, I I notice that my communities overlap quite a bit, um, but I don't actually see much in the world that explores that overlap. I feel like there's this want to oversimplify people down to just like one difference, but reality doesn't really work that way where we're all complex little bastards so um i think that it is important to acknowledge that that like people are multifaceted and um yeah like a lot of non-binary people are also asexual and a lot of asexual people are also autistic and a lot of autistic people are also non-binary and that's not a flaw that's just a fact you know Mm. um and it we, we definitely need we need to recognise that and, and to to display that a bit more in our media because, yeah, that oversimplification, I think, hurts a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, we will have to wrap it up very uh, shortly, but give us a quick spiel about where we can get tickets and when is the show happening? Totally. So Artemis, Artemis is playing at La Mama HQ from the 17th of May to the 22nd. Um, you can get tickets on La Mama's website. Um, 
which is a uh, yeah. If you just Google Artemis Artemis La Mama, it'll come up. Um, I'd love to see you there. Yeah, I feel like that's. Perfect. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Artemis. Uh, best of luck with the show and thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. So that was Artemis Munoz speaking on their new show, Artemis Artemis, happening at La Mama Theatre um, from the 17th to the 22nd of May. You're on 3CR Breakfast, and that brings us to the end of our program today. Some great chats on the climate crisis, on poverty, um, and our, our conversation about our local theatre. So get around it. Up next is Stick Together. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.